It's not a matter of like, okay, I suddenly no longer doubt myself. I am great. It's more so a matter of how do you circumvent it? How do you see it coming? And so for me, I, I have my people that I go to and I, I don't vent to a lot of people. I'm, I'm very private. So like I have my tribe but I'm like, it's happening again. Oh, I feel like I don't belong. Like somebody come get me. And then, you know, they'll come in and be like, girl, like you got it. Like, there's no way that this, that you weren't hired by accident. They didn't, they don't look up like, oh, what are you doing here? Hi, welcome back to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in TV, film, commercials, and off-Broadway. And every week, I bring you an incredible mentor in entertainment, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. Happy Mentor Monday, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce you to our next mentor, Kara Barnett. Kara is currently the creative director of Strong Black Lead at Netflix. She's also a TEDx talk speaker, a former senior producer and writer of branded content at BET, a powerhouse in the industry with over 10 plus years in unscripted casting, development, brand product integration, editing, and more. We discuss her start in casting for America's Next Top Model, which I was a huge fan of. I'm sure you were too. Before moving on to work with reality shows on Discovery, ITV, CBS, Viacom, OWN, A&E, as well as BET. I asked her about how it was to jump from project to project and how it feels to be in one place for a consistent period of time because she's experienced both. She gives great advice about networking, navigating production, and combating imposter syndrome, which was the focus of her TED Talk. Without further ado, here's Kara Barnett. Welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And the first question I like to ask is, what was your first role in entertainment? My first role in entertainment, I I would say, was my job um, as a casting associate on America's Next Top Model. And that was I, it's so funny because I'm naturally an introvert. So why would I take a job where I have to talk to people all day long? But it was the best job. It was the best first job for me because it really kind of forced me out of my shell. Like I had just moved to LA for the first time in my, in my early twenties. And had I not had a job like that, that really kind of put me out there. And part of my job was talking to massive groups of people and organizing massive auditions and casting calls. I probably wouldn't be as extroverted <laughs> in that sense as I am now and fearless in some ways. So like that was my first role. I, my real first job, I was a post-production coordinator for a network, which I will not name, okay. which basically meant like, no, I mean, like, I just like, I love the network, no shade to them, but my job was sitting in front of an Excel spreadsheet and scheduling edit sessions. And so yeah. coming out of college full of like, and then that would make my first job. I literally cried every day. Oh. <laughs> I was like, this is not the dream. And so, so yeah, my first job on set was America's Next Top Model. And how did you get that? That job? So I got that job because I was at the job, the post-production job, miserable. And I knew I had two choices. Either I, I, I was going to be miserable or I was going to be miserable and eventually get comfortable, which I felt was worse. Mm-hmm. Like there was nothing worse than just settling there forever. So I... Yeah. Stayed miserable. I made sure I stayed uncomfortable and I would send out resumes every day to like 
these other jobs. And I lived in Connecticut at the time. These jobs that I wanted were in California. And so, you know, I would regularly get, so a friend of mine who lived in Atlanta, he her, he had a friend who worked for Top Model and he knew they were looking oh. for casting people. So he said, hey, and, you know, this is back when reality was kind of still at its Yeah, a model was like in the front, the front. Right. Yeah, this it was early. Like, like gather with your friends to watch. Like it was appointment viewing. Yes. And so that was one of my shows that like everybody knew I loved. So he's like, hey, they're looking for casting people. So I sent a resume to them. And the casting director, who's one of my mentors, Michelle Mock, love her forever. She, she was like, no, you live in Connecticut. We are in California. It's not going to work. And I said, cool. All right. And then the next season I applied again. And she was like, I said what I said. You got to apply again. <laughs> and so the third season I was like, all right, I don't want to, you know, get stalkery. So I said, can I just come out to you and can I take you out for coffee? Because at the end of the day, I just wanted to know what I didn't know. I just wanted to know, okay, what, what will start turning the yeses and the nose into yeses? Yes. yes. So she was like, yeah, you can come out here and I'll go for coffee with you. Probably she's like, just, just stop. <laughs> so I scheduled the trip to go out. And I think the week before I was supposed to go out, I was at the office late one night and I got a text message from the person who worked there. And she said, Hey, someone on our casting team just fell out. If you can get out here by Thursday, Michelle will interview you. And I literally called out sick. My sister, who is my best friend, emptied out one of her bank accounts. Cause I mean, we're in our early twenties. So like nobody has like last minute plane ticket money. Sitting yeah. around. So she emptied one of her bank accounts, got me like a really expensive ticket to LA. And I went to the interview, got it. And Michelle was like, can you start tomorrow? And I said, I still live in Connecticut, but I can be here on Monday. <laughs> and that was wow. how I ended up on the show. That's amazing. And you were there for a few years. So you really like went up a little bit with the rank, like on the ranks of the show. Right. Right? I started out as a casting AP and then I uh, became a cast coordinator. So there's the casting side and of course the production side. So right. I only had two months of work promised. And so after I cast it, I was like, okay, I need to find something else. And so I realized that the, the production team really needed somebody to kind of like be with the girls, you know, off camera when we needed them to either, you know, get to and from set or just make sure that they were good or a liaison for their families. And that position was a cast coordinator. And the person who was doing it before me was, was about to leave. So mm-hmm. I, I applied for that. So I became nice. a cast coordinator. So I would literally just leapfrog from casting the show to like working with the show and then back to casting it again. Yeah. So I kind of maintained for my first few That's years. That's awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about the show itself? Because I, I was one of those like huge fans of the show. Like I was looking up your first season on the show, I think Jasmine won. And I was like, I remember that like it was yesterday. <laughs> yes. I worked seasons eight through 15. Okay. So eight was my first. I think Jasmine won. I think she was five. Okay. So then Maybe I was early. I started on eight. So I basically, you know, it, I call America's Next Top Model LA High School because I feel like everywhere you go, when you go on an interview or anything like that, you're like, oh, I worked on Top Model. They're like, oh, me too. Or, oh, do you know oh. Ponto? It's it become nice. this rite of passage. So it's, it's happened to me so many times that everybody knows somebody. And it's almost kind of like, well, what were your years? Oh, I was class of so-and-so. Oh. So, but it very much is what I love to call the anchor show. And for me, I feel like that's a big plus starting out, like to have an anchor show like that, where you know that, they're coming back for seasons. They usually hire the same crew because they like that kind of stability. So when you find a show like that, that at least, you know, I have work for this half of the year, then it, it's easier for you to step out and take chances and try new things and do new projects in the downtime. 
So it was great. It, it was, it taught me a lot. Like I said, I was a casting person. I became a producer on that show. So I learned producing on that show. I learned how to handle talent. I learned how to reach out to talent. I learned, I mean, my first guest was Kim Kardashian. So having to like book her car and how do we deal with talent? And, yes. and you know, my, my, my producer share is what I call the goat of talent management. Like she was handling, of course, all the judges, but also all the guests and we had like Chanel Iman and Kim Kardashian and yeah. those people and, you know, Lauren from the Hills. And I mean, I'm, I'm definitely like stamping a very definite time and era, but like, it's cool because I feel like there's an art to even talent management that sometimes people can look over yes. and learn the ins and outs of how do you, how do you manage agents and, and managers and talents? And that also we have 12 girls who have, some of them have never left their town. So you also have to manage them and, so yeah, I learned were, a lot. Were you looking for stories a lot of the time, not just people? Like, I feel like all of them had stories. Is that yeah. part of it? Well, I mean, any reality show, you know, you want people to be able to relate to it. You know, there's a, there's kind of a formula to it. And I feel like Carlos, the, the Carlos Kings of the world can speak to like the making of the perfect reality show and the Andy Cohen's. But, you know, the, the very basics are, you know, you look for people that, no matter who's watching it, they could find somebody who they were like, oh, I relate to that. I was watching The Circle on Netflix the other day and I was like, I see the casting. I'm like, this is really good casting because I sat there and I waited and I was like, that's who I like. Cool. And that's all, that's all you need is one person to be like, that's my person. Cool. Now I'm, I'm invested. So casting the show, Michelle Mock, I could talk later about why she's my mentor, but she has such an eye and a gift for spotting story. It's not drama because on some level, we also have a responsibility because we're putting these women in, house, in a house together. So we have to make sure from a liability standpoint that we are very clear on everybody's like, personality and how they deal with rejection and those kind of things. So it's not just like, oh, whoever's going to fight the most, let's go with it. But it's a matter of like, who is somebody that there would be a transition in a story? Who's somebody that people would root for? Who's somebody that we see potentially? And so, and then casting is just fun. Like at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. I'm like, <laughs> like we're not, we're not, you know, so I was part of an amazing team and we'd get flown out to cities and you have however many days to like go out and find amazing girls. And so there's, there's a certain personality, which I think, you know, of course, COVID times changes that, like you have to be able to go up to somebody in a mall in a park and be like, hi, my yeah. name is, I work for so-and-so, I, you know, we're doing casting call. Would you want to come out and, you know, not be a creeper, don't be creepy about it, but we definitely would look for story. And I think that's a big part of being a casting person is being open-minded. Like I come from, I was born and raised on an island in the Caribbean. So there was a lot of life that I didn't get exposed to as a child, but I was raised by amazing open-minded parents. So even coming up here to America, going to an HBCU in Delaware, and then just being in an industry where there's so many people that are not like me, you have to be able to see past your own experiences and perspectives and say, oh, well, that's interesting. I've never met somebody like that, but I want to know more. So that means other people might want to know more. So, yeah. So then why did you decide to leave? Is it, I mean, you were doing that for so long. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I said, it really was just this, this boomerang effect where I was just cast, casting and working on it, casting. And then you'd have like a month or two between like after we wrapped the shoot. I mean, it's an amazing show. You, you travel, you, you get to, I mean, my yeah. first time home in Amsterdam or with my friends from Tom Malibu, I have pictures of us hanging out by, you know, on, on these iconic set you're in New Zealand on a hillside with like Mr. J and Tyra and you're doing lunch break and you're like what is life right now yeah so it's great um I think that one thing we have to remember though as creatives as professionals is that we are in charge of our career and it's nobody's job to keep us employed and it's still a job like there's still a production company and a show that they have to get their bottom line done and so if god forbid the show had ended at cycle 15 I would I would 
I would have had known nobody else in LA because I've just been working on that show and I've never exposed myself to another network. So I just decided around 14, I'm like, I need to start branching out outside of my comfort zone, meeting other people, working on other shows so that my network and my resources were not just limited to this one production company. Because I knew I couldn't depend on them to keep me employed forever. And it was not their job to do that. No, not at all. And so then you had many different jobs after that. So there was a period of time you worked at, you know, did all these reality shows. You worked on, you know, stuff on BET, AMC, Discovery, ITV, CBS, Viacom, OWN, A&E. Can you tell us a little bit about navigating the life of a, or the career of a freelance producer? What's that like to go from project to project to crew to crew? Yeah, it's very much this, the adaptability of, the nature of being a producer, like even on set on a show, the the name the name of the game is being able to pivot, so problem solve quickly. Right. So that's kind of already in my nature. So then when I apply it to my career, and it's like, all right, cool, I have to switch gears. So today, you know, my last show was a show about the Mann family on BET, and you know, they're they're very much rooted in the gospel world. That's what they do. And then my next show is. E.J. Johnson, Johnson. friends, New York, and that's a totally different world. Once again, going back to the open-mindedness, I have to make sure that I am always adaptable and I'm not bringing my rigidity or my personal beliefs or whatever it is into the show. And while I, while my values stay the same, I have to be open to a new world. So I know nothing about the world of E.J. Johnson. I mean, I know, I know who he is. I know who his family is, but like how he lives his life and how he and his friends are, it's just a matter of quickly learning, you know, understanding what the boundaries are, understanding, you know, how they relate, how they communicate, how they want to be communicated with. That's a big part of it. So that's just the adaptability of being able to go show to show. Part of it is also thinking ahead. Like I, <laughs> I think I, you know, not, not, not that I'm domesticated now that I'm not freelance, but as a freelance, you hunt what you kill. So right. you know, if I know that my show, my show wraps in July, by about April, May, I'm already like, all right, cool, bet. the next thing? Do I know what I'm going to do next? Am I looking, am I starting to like pay attention to like what shows are crewing up, what I'm hearing about? You start talking on set, like, oh, what you doing next? And it's just, you have to be proactive about what you're looking to do next. And get on top of that, like when I was a younger producer, there's a time you hit hit your stride and you no longer have to look and people just call you and ask you if you're available. That's that's the sweet spot. But like in the early days, you know, when you have to send that email out, like, hey guys, I'm wrapping my show. Just if anyone's looking for an AP, I'm here. And you know, my friends would always commiserate about how uncomfortable and awkward that is to send that out to your, your you know, your distro list. Cause you know, it's like self-marketing, it, but yeah. you have to, like it's very important as a woman, as a black woman, like you get comfortable yeah. with saying, I'm dope, I'm available, what's up? This is my rate. <laughs> and I think that was the precursor to what I think is very normal now on social media, where it's like self-branding, self-marketing, like being comfortable saying, like, I made this, I did this, this is what I do really well. So yeah, that's a big part of it in terms of like the freelance life. But I enjoyed it. Like I it, like I said, I didn't have to like hunt for too long because Good. at the end of the day with freelance work, I also remember that the skill, the job, it's not rocket science. Once again, it's making good TV and having good instincts, but also it's just being somebody people like to work with. Like a yeah. part of it is like, there's 10 people who can do make the phone calls you make and write the scripts you make. If part of it is like, Kira's dope, Kira gets along with talent really well, Kira doesn't have beef with anybody, like, then that's part of the skill set is that I'm somebody who can come into your team and like elevate your team from an energy standpoint where we can just like hit the ground running and go. So yeah, uh, that's part of freelance as well. Be somebody people want to call, be somebody that people enjoy having around the office. So that 
that could be the difference between you and the other person getting the call. So good. And yeah, and it's a small world. So I feel like if you work with a couple of people, that that's how they recommend you do something else. Yeah. What kind of, I mean, you talked earlier, you mentioned how your values stayed the same. What are some of your values? Can you like define that for us? I mean, it's a matter of just being true to who you are. Like I'm a woman of integrity. I'm a woman of truth. A big part of my job, especially when I'm dealing with talent as a story producer, as a supervisor producer, as a, as whatever I'm doing is that talent has to trust me, especially in the reality space where we're working with storylines that deal with your real life and like things that we put on air could affect you after we're long gone. I have to have a relationship with my talent, with EJ, with the mans, with Nelly, with whoever I worked with, with uh, D on Bring It, with Lifetime. I have to come in, you don't know me, and I have to establish a relationship with you that, okay, cool, this is your storyline. What don't you want us to show? Okay, what's out of bounds? How do you like to be communicated with? And I have to respect you. Mm-hmm. I have to get your respect. And then we got we got to rock together. Like we we almost have to yeah. become friends so yeah. that when I come in and you're having a bad day and I say, all right, how much do you need? 10 minutes? Cool. Camera crew, let, let's give her 10 minutes. And, yeah. and she knows that she'll get that. Or she knows that if she says, hey, can you guys just, you know, not show this part? I got you. And so I, I always operate with integrity. I, I, I am a Christian woman. I have my own boundaries with like things I'm willing to co-sign. Yeah. You know, not that, I, not that you can't do the talent, but I might be like, all right, cool. This may not be my cup of tea. Just, you know, things like I get it. after the shoot's wrapped, there are things that, like places I won't go. Just, you know, you as a woman in the industry, you have to hold yourself. Yeah, Those I agree with that. No, that's, it's important because I mean, you've done so many shows, but I'm sure there's a lot of no's there too, where you're just like, no, nah, I don't want to work on that one maybe. So yeah, yeah. that gets aligned with that. Okay, so you've worked on so many reality shows and you really had sort of different roles that we talked about, right? So what is a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about the different roles and is that hard to navigate when you're going through that journey? So what I mean by that is, you know, if you're kind of finding your next job, you're like, this is my rate. When do you take on the role of a story producer? When do you take on the role of, what's the other one that I was like, what's that? A field producer. Mm-hmm. When do you like take on these different roles and as opposed, is it just what they need? And you're like, as long as you're paying me my rate, I'll do that too. Is it something of a hierarchy? How does that work? All right. I think, I mean, there's, there's an obvious hierarchy in terms of like executive producer, co-exec, supervising, senior story, you know, like that. Role. I'm, I'm sticking purely in the inscripted world from my experience. But in terms of, I guess your question is, how do you transition from one to the other? Is that? Is that yeah, right? pretty much that. But also like, let's say you're hearing of a crew, like, you know, filming in September, for instance, and they are looking for X. When do you go, yeah, I'll take that. Or that might be a little bit lower than what I've been used to. Mm-hmm. Or that might be like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm now reaching. Like I'm now like going to that next level. When does that happen? And that kind of, hmm. yeah. In terms of knowing when to ask for more money, I just feel like it really comes down to knowing what you need for yourself and for your own budget, what you need to live, but also being honest about what value you bring, what add-on value you can bring. So is there a special insight that you bring? Is there a, a cultural nuance that you have that you're like, well, this is something that, you know, I can, I can really kind of help you guys out with because I already, I'm from that world. When I worked with Bring It On Lifetime, a lot of their dancing and their culture from, from that show was majorette dancing, which is highly done at HBCUs. So yeah. while I'm not a dancer, I went to an HBCU. So in terms of like understanding like the lingo and kind of like how, what the value was and why it was so important and the schools the girls wanted to go to when they, when they all graduated, like that was all something I already knew about. So there's such a value in that. And I'm not saying that's why they hired me, but in terms of look for ways that you can make the job even better, even easier for the team 
And I feel like that's a huge part of, of negotiation as well. No, I love that. And it's great advice because you're saying not only can you list your skill sets and like, you're like, okay, here are the skills, here are the bullet points of like all the skills that I offer, but also here's the perspective as well. Like how can your perspective be an additional bonus and potentially like help in salary negotiation? And in those conversations, say it's a team that you work with before. And so they're used to that one rate, but you are now working for this other rate. Just be very honest. Say like, oh, actually now I've, you know, I've I've moved up to this rate on this show and and make sure you're not lying. Like, you know, on this other show I worked on, I got this amount of money because they may go check. So be very honest, but, you know, just, just be honest and say like, this is what I work for now. And for the most part, it's worked out for me, I should say. (laughs) Excellent. No. And then people can learn from that. That's great. Well said. So you went from like positions like field producer to then story producer and senior story producer. How does that work in terms of like the roles and responsibilities, the responsibilities of those individual roles? Like how does that work? What's the difference? Story producer is the person who primarily is on set taking notes of the scene and the content we're making. So they're there to make sure that the flow overall of the show, the story arcs of the show makes sense. And so it, it may be a team, it may be a small team, but for the most part, they're taking notes go back to the office. We'll write up our beat sheets of what happened in that scene. And that goes to post. So post will then use our beat sheets and also work with the post supervisor or the supervising story producer, who's kind of looking at the big wall with all the index cards. Yeah. They're like, okay, so we talked about this in episode two, we got to make sure we tie it into what happened in episode five. So there's that, Mm. you know, that macro vision part of it. And then the story producers are part of that team that make sure that we get what we need. It's really beneficial when post is happening while we're still shooting. So that if ever they're like, oh, that didn't work. Can you get them to do a pickup? You can still go back and say like, hey guys, I need that red shirt and that dress that you guys had on the other day so we can do it. Not all casts are amenable to it. I know there there are some casts that were like, I'm not doing it again. And so you have to, you have to really try to like be very, very good with your notes and because it may be that they might say, well, I'll just do one line. What was the one line you need? And so you have to be able to envision that wall and be like, all right, cool. That's so crazy. So that story, field producer is different. They're more of the logistical person. That's the person who, oh, we're doing a scene with these two people at the pool. So I got to make sure the pool, the, the, the hotel that owns the pool knows we're there, get that signed off. I got to make sure the crew knows what time does talent get here. I'm making sure that, you know, uh, is there a special guest that's there? Does the guest there, are we wearing something? They're the logistics of it. So they're there and they're the problem solver on set. They're the field producer. Sometimes that person will also take notes. I've seen it rarely because most times story producer is really only the person focusing on what's being said. And then what was the other role you asked about? I feel senior story producer. I mean, that person is kind of, I mean, in my experience, interchangeable. Like sometimes it's the person's also on set. They just might have more experience. They could also possibly be the one that's there tying in the macro vision. But for the most part, in my in my experience, when I was a story producer and senior story producer, I was doing the same thing on set. I just had more experience and more input into the storyline. Got it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah it's, it's so interesting to me. It's so, it's so unlike anything I've done. So really? yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. So, so you started moving up, you got to senior story producer for It's a Man's World and supervising producer for EJNYC. And now you're starting to really be involved more, I think, with like the story arc, like you said, and the show notes and the show concept and the structure. How is that transition as you're starting to to move into that? It's, you know, it, it's definitely very... I won't say intimidating, but it's very much like you're aware that like I've, I've, I've never taken it lightly that these are people's lives and all the story that we're crafting has to be rooted somewhat in, in reality because they have to live on after that. So yeah. I take it very seriously. I took I took the idea that 
where and people like to joke about playing God, like we're not playing God, but like we're, we're creating realities that a majority of the people watching the show will believe. So right. I take it very seriously. It, it was very, like I said, very taxing and very detail oriented because you literally are just making sure that you're not leaving anything unturned and you kind of have to follow the flow of life. So that's, that's mm. part of my personality now, like even from like being a baby producer, when I was dealing with models to like now at Netflix, like I'm, I'm, I am the queen of pivot. Like, okay, cool. That didn't work. What are we doing next? Let's try something else. Because sometimes, especially dealing with like high-end talent, like EJ and and, yeah. and, Alicia and their friends, like they are used to like a lifestyle where, you know, there's not too many people telling them what to do every day. So sometimes as the show, we have to go with the flow. Like, okay. Now this is what's happening. EJ now is doing this. So let's, let's not that we're just going to, you know, move every time, but like, sometimes like, oh, this is a more interesting story. So now my team and I have to go back and figure out, okay, what do you want to do with this? Do we want to move with this? So now we, t- we talk to the segment producer or the field producer, like, hey, we now want to do this new storyline. Can you find a company that we can do that with? Can we, can we do a meeting with EJ with, you know, Pop Sugar? Can we, can we, can we do something to explore this reality now? Because this is actually his reality. And I always like to skew more towards what's really happening than trying to like create something. Create. That, yeah. And that a lot of, I think, you know, reality shows sometimes are like that. So it's nice yeah. to know that like you're following just the flow of that person's life. Yeah. 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 I mean, the reason why they have a reality shows is because they are larger than life and they are big personalities. Yeah, so they for have the most to be. part, if you cast it right, you don't have to do too much of like crafting. It's just a matter of the scenarios happening in a timely manner while we're shooting, but you may have to recreate a scene simply because we weren't shooting two months ago when you had this meeting. But for the most part, you know, if you just flow with them and you trust them and they, they understand what they're doing, they'll give you a good show. So yeah. And EJ NYC was right after Rich Kids of Beverly Hills, right? It was like a spinoff almost, or it was like his own version of that type of thing. So it's like, everyone was already like aware of who he was and his personality. And they were like, you, you're getting your own show. Like EJ is the person who like, how would you not give him him his own show? (laughs) Yeah. I remember um, that show. It was a great show. So then in 2017, you started working at BET Digital. So that's different. Now you're at a place, right? Now you're a bit more stable. You're like, I have this one thing. How is that transition from like going from project to project, sometimes doing four or five, I think a year to now just being like, I'm in the, in this BET digital umbrella. Yeah. It was very scary. Very scary. Yeah. I think it's, it's probably the scariest thing I've done to date. Mm. Possibly. Yeah. But just in terms of like, I have this career where I don't have to make a phone call for a job. I just let people know I'm, I'm wrapped and calls come in and I'm good. And I feel very much valued and paid well. And, and I just felt like one, I had, I had done all the reality I, ha- I wanted to do. And I just wasn't as motivated anymore. Yeah. And two, I just, I knew that digital and streaming and social were a thing, were a bigger thing than mm. people that, that I w- was ar- currently around were making it out to be. And I was like, that's going to be a thing for us. And we should pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. And so, and also I just felt like, I'm the customer. Like, I'm a love of reality TV. And I felt myself kind of waning. I'm like, okay, I don't have to be home. At, like, you know, there's DVRs now. I don't have to be home at the exact same time. And so I was like, the digital streaming thing is a thing because it very much yeah. gives us the flexibility that DVRs initially did. So I was just like, I want to get into that. So I stopped. T- I turned down at least three or four jobs while trying to figure out where I wanted to go next. And that was the scary part. That's the part where you're like, I'm just going to bet on me and invest in my dream. And (laughs) you know, all all the inspirational quotes you see, and you're like, it's so much easier in theory, but I applied to a bunch of jobs on on LinkedIn. And I was just applying like 
because I had no experience. All my experience was reality TV. So people were like, very much like the Michelle Mock was like, no, no, thank you. Funny. And so BT, uh, Jermaine Hall of BT took a chance on me. I think because mostly because he wanted somebody who had TV experience, but they wanted to create long form content for the digital platforms. So at that point, we're still very kind of growing. They were in the infancy stage. So he took a chance on me and I, I, I make TV really well. I just hadn't made it for a digital audience yet. Right. So that was the hybrid job I needed to get my foot in the door. Mm. And, yeah. At the time, the, the platforms were YouTube and the Facebook were very kind of just sparse and we weren't the destination like this complex, which is like music and sneakerheads and that, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, there, there are other platforms that have their specific brand and BT Digital had not at that point yet had a consistent hosting cadence where we knew what we were known for. And so besides, of course, our, our linear content, we have clips, that kind of stuff. So I created some original content. We became very much based on event coverage, exclusive celebrity interviews. And so we would go to music festivals. We'd go out to all these parties. We create this space where like we had the backstage access that other people didn't have. And that was the beginning of it. And then I created some more original content there for them. And that was my initial job at BET was lead editorial producer. It sounds fun. It was, it was. I was there. So I started in May 2017. And then in October 2017, there was a reorg and I got shifted over to social. So the social team is definitely more catering towards like the linear content. So our TV shows, like they socialize and they always promoted like our award shows. And so my job was senior producer of branded content and original content. Mm. And so I, the Tribeca Film Festival came in and they were like, we want to do a collaboration with BET. So I created Bet on Black, where we, for that year, we put all the Black directors of that year pieces on them. Or ARP for Black History Month, we wanted to do something to honor a a legend and we chose Diane Carroll, rest in peace. And we did a collaboration with ARP called Matriarchs of the Movement. Tatiana Hollyfield Arthur, uh, she's now the head of social at Hulu. So she was my boss at the time. And so she challenged me because, you know, we were social and we're BT and, you know, people expect, you know, what they expect from us. And we wanted to do something edgy. We wanted to find like a, a new voice and she wanted me to create this original show for like a male skewing audience for our social team, just to see if, if we could get into that space. Yeah. And so I created this podcast called I'll Apologize Later with Mouse Jones, who is one of my favorite hosts to work with. And he's out in New York. And so we did this two seasons of this digital podcast on BT Social, which did very well. It was a team of four of us. And we were doing the work of like, oh, it was a weekly podcast. So we were literally doing the daily show basically, <laughs> but like it was four of us and we were ripping and running and it was one of the best experiences. It was the most oh. intense experiences because I was literally doing a weekly show. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, I I credit that team. It was Kevin Spence, Jared McGriff, Juliet. Like it was, it was an amazing team that just off the strength of just a great idea. And we, we, we did two seasons of it. And so that was one of my proudest moments at BET was getting a chance to do that original show. And that's amazing because I think right around that time, I think podcasts were starting to really get a lot of traction. It's only, I think the last year specifically with like the, like the pandemic that I think podcasts have taken like a huge uptick, but like prior to that, you know, it wasn't as, you know, saturated or oversaturated. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I like the part of my job that involves discovering new voices mm. and mouse was not a new voice because mouse is a very loud voice but he was somebody who literally was at the office every day i thought he worked at BT because he was there before i got there and i i asked him he, you could hear him across the office debating music and culture 
And eventually I was like, well, who does he work for? And they're like, oh, he doesn't work here. He's just friends with everybody. And so I was like, let's give him a shot. Let's get him do it. And so like, I love the idea of, and now he's so well-known in New York. He hosts Trap Karaoke. So like, for me, it's just a matter of, even in my current job, I'm always like, well, who is out there that's doing good work and making good content that we can align with? Mm. Because, you know, there's something about being able to like discover new voices. That's an exciting part of development. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's great. And I love that that's something that you not only love and are passionate about, but like want to do more of. Now you're a creative director at Netflix. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition and what your role and responsibilities are? Sure. So my role at Netflix as creative director for Strong Black Lead, which is an editorial and publishing channel, which is a sub-brand of Netflix that targets and specifically talks to the Black audience. My role is to develop and create content that speaks with the audience, not to or at, mm. and to also you know, find amazing voices that are out there, creators, and collaborate with them and also align with them because you know, Strong Black Lead is such a dope brand. But you know, there are other creators that, that have pockets and have, have reaches that we may not have. And so our goal is always to speak to the entire Black experience. And, you know, that's a global Black experience. So I'm always looking and I'm always trying to figure out what are new ways and new perspectives I can like bring into the brand and make sure that everybody feels seen when they Mm. look at Strong Black Lead. So great. So throughout everything, you were also involved in other independent projects, such as Exposed Vashikola, which looked amazing. And then as well as your most recently High Risk, can you talk about, you know, doing projects outside of all of the amazing stuff you've been doing. So I've always wanted, like storytelling has been my thing. Like I, I, as a producer, I think I wanted to be a writer when I was younger. And then I went to college that didn't have a writing program. So then production was the next best thing. I fell in love with that. But like, I always, always, always about story with me. And so even outside of my nine to five, when I was casting and working in shows, I always wanted to make shorts and documentaries and tell stories. And then coming from Trinidad, born and raised, I, I knew that I wanted to, to, to also hone in on the Caribbean and the Caribbean American experience and what that looks like, because you rarely see it. That's a huge part of, of my desire moving forward in my career is to create more opportunities for Caribbean and Caribbean American storytellers. Yes. And so for me, I created this, this documentary series called Exposed in 2011 with my production company, 25A Productions. And so my sister and I, we run it together. And uh, so Vashti was our first uh, pilot episode, and it's about taking Caribbean or Caribbean American celebrities and take them back to their home mm-hmm. island and have them reunite with family or just an experience that they haven't had. And I don't, I think this was before, who do you think you are? I don't quite remember when that premiered, but I remember seeing yes. that. Like, isn't that a, isn't that the same NASA? Hey. <laughs> but um, Vashti was amazing because she's Trinidadian, but she's this DJ, influencer, amazing designer, shoe designer. Oh, amazing. Only in New York. And so took her back home to Trinidad and we had this three-day excursion with her where she reunited with her, fa- her mother's family that lived in the island. She hadn't been back there since she was a teenager. Her family lived in a very remote part where like they also aren't keeping tabs on her. So it was this moment of like oh. a flick. And here's this woman that literally like has you know, I think she's the first woman to have her own Jordan. Like she's this it girl in New York. And then she's like on a beach in the Caribbean, wrapped in a towel, talking to her cousin about, you know, last time they saw each other when they were teenagers. And it was just the sweetest moment. Like she cried, like it was just a moment. And for me, that was very much like a clench, a clenching of like, oh, that, this is dope. Like, this is the kind of storytelling I want. I want authentic storytelling. Like I'm, I make reality TV and that's great, but I want like 
just like this kind of pure storytelling. And so we did episode two with Nia Long, who's an actress. Yes. And we took her back home in Trinidad as well. Yes. She's Asian and Trinidadian, but we took her to Trinidad with her son and her mom. And she got to like go to a, like a carnival mass camp. Because I think her, people in her family had been designers in the past and then she reunited with her. So it, it was something that we really enjoyed doing. Ran out of money because I was funding it myself on a yeah. freelance budget. So yes, fair. there were two episodes and I was like, we're going to shelf this. But, you know, I have the episodes if anybody wants to see them. They're on, they're on Vimeo. And then High Risk is, I've, I've done other stuff in between yeah. the projects, but... High Risk is my most recent one. I'm super proud of it. So last year, my friend, Eric Dickens, who has a production company, University Village Pictures, he approached me and said, hey, I have a personal experience that I've been through. Would you be interested in doing this project with me that really talks to the mortality rates of Black and Brown women in going through childbirth and going through just the racial bias that sometimes occurs in yeah. that process for us. And then also I came in and I said, well, I'm very, I'm a big advocate for mental health and emotional health. And so I said, well, let's add on the layer of mm. what are the things that plague us as a community between infertility and the fact that historically black women were valued for their breeding in, in times of slavery. So like, yeah. what does it mean mentally for us now when a woman's not able to have a child? How does that affect us? Or wow. um, miscarriage or the fact that culturally, you know, there's, there's such a, there's such an onus on like, get married, have kids, you know, do it all now. And so we, talk, we wanted to bring in that aspect of the emotional health of what happens to a father, a black father, when he goes through infertility or miscarriage with his wife, and he's not allowed to have that emotional reaction because it's not his body. So we, through COVID last year, we, we literally spent most of the year doing video interviews with people all over the country, wow. just wanted to meet people, talk to doctors. And so in August of last year, we had a very COVID safe shoot and we, we interviewed four mothers and a slate of doctors ended up being all black women. That was just by accident, but therapists, doctors, doulas, nurses. And we just had this amazing three day shoot where they just told us about their experiences. Wow. Moms who had lost babies, moms who had almost lost babies, almost lost their lives. And so we created this documentary film called High Risk, and it is now the official selection in the Michelle Film Festival, which is, I believe, the end of April, which is around this time yep. in California. And then the Martha, Martha's Vineyard African American Film Festival. And we are nice. waiting for some other film festivals. And we are in talks with some distribution channels about airing it. So we're excited. Like it's, it's excited about the conversation because the fact that, you know, this was happening and since last year when a young lady in Brooklyn died during childbirth and it was it happened very quickly and her boyfriend was there and he had no control of the situation. And this has been happening for so long. When we think of Marion Sims, who was the father of gynecology, who would use slave women to test his experiments of, of anesthesia, of test his experiments without anesthesia. And so just kind of trailing the history of how women have black women have been discounted it was time for us to have this conversation in a bigger way. So uh, Black Maternal Health Week, it just happened in April, early in April, and people have been being much more vocal about it. We're excited about people being vocal about it. And at HyrisDoc on Instagram is where you can find more information. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you. The last couple questions that I wanted to ask you that I ask every guest for the season of the podcast is one, what is your definition of success? I know it's not an easy question, but I just, I think it's important for people to kind of, especially since I think that 
particular word, the definition sometimes sometimes evolves over time. Like the way you think of success in your 20s is going to be different than the way you think of your success in your 30s and, and so on. So I think that there's this element of like, where are you right now with that definition? Okay, that's, that makes it much easier. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right now, my definition of success is peace. And mm-hmm. that's peace in my professional life in that the, the, the content I make now gives me peace. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm putting out things that have messages that mean something. And legacy is important to me and, and how I show up, you know, when I have children, how people speak of my work is important to me. And I, I feel proud. I, I have pride in the work I've done in the past, but I, I feel like I want to be remembered for the work I do now. And so mm-hmm. I have peace with that. I have peace in my personal life in terms of work-life balance and mental health is very important to me. I, in my twenties, I was that girl that was like, I'll do it. Okay. I'll stay late. I'll sleep at the office. Sure. Whatever. But, and you know, that's part of what gets you, you know, into the room. That's part of what gets you here. But you know, in my thirties, I I want peace. I want to be able to have a productive day, but if at four o'clock we're done, let's go, let's go, let's go for a drive. Let's go take a walk. Let's go walk the dog. Let's go breathe for a second, especially after last year, especially after last week, let's just, breathe and it's okay and I have I, I still deal with that a lot especially with imposter syndrome of like is it okay if I just take a break is it okay if I'm not being productive all the time am I still valuable to this team and it's like yeah you're your best self when you take a break and say okay cool I'm I'm good last year was hard not being able to go to a museum go to a music festival like mm-hmm. just take a breath and get creatively fed for me I think that I found peace in like the little things like walks and drives yeah and phone calls. And so I, yeah, I have peace and that that's successful to me. Oh man. I learned from that. Thank you. That hits me. I'm like always trying to find balance. And, you know, at the end of the day, when, you know, you're like, I could keep working or I could try to take that break and, and understanding that that break will help you be more productive, like the next day or later, but it's hard. I'm sure social media plays a role in it too, for all of, for both of us. Like you see other people grinding. So you're like, Oh gosh, I, I have doing- to keep going. I, there's more I could do. Like, like sometimes one, I, I, I've learned to stop wishing I have what other people had because I have no idea. And then no most, idea. when you see, I think last year gave us a peek behind, especially some celebrities, like a lot of them really kind of like had a moment of like moments with themselves because they had to stop. There, were, there was no set. There was no call sheet. There was no, so they were at home and you could tell they were like, what am I doing? Like, and they were on live every day. And you're like, you're like, you don't, you don't need these. It's good. It's okay. It's or like a lot of, a lot of breakups, a lot of breakups right. came out. That's, you know, you're just like, people just don't know what to do and sit down, but I yeah. think that's the peace. And, and that's a part of why I think a lot of times in our community and communities of color, when we have these traumatic experiences happen, it's like, we just want to sit down. We just want peace. And so I value my peace more than ever. When, yeah. when you could have a day where there's nothing traumatic happening and you could just chill out and vibe with the music on. Yeah. yeah, love that. And then last but certainly not least, we've talked a little bit about it. So I kind of already know where it's coming, but what are some of your mentors? So of course I mentioned Michelle Mock. I love her. She's a woman of color. She's a badass. She's my first, she took a chance on me. I owe my career to her. But I also saw her start a family while running a room. We worked, I mean, at the time, top model, I think it still is with CBS. So she was in these conference rooms with predominantly people that were not her gender or color. And yeah. she, was, she was showing up as, 
this is what I do well. I cast mm-hmm. the show. Well. I know. And so like being able to stand in that power of, you know, it's who went to Ivy League or whatever. She's like, my instincts are what make this show hot. So let's go. You know, so I love yeah. that. And I'm sure I have, I have no idea what school she went to. I'm sure she has amazing education, but just the fact that like, her instincts really what got her into those rooms. And I'm like, your instincts are valuable. One, you can start a family while being successful. Yes. She, had, she had amazing kids. And then another mentor I, I look up to is Maya Watson. She actually hired me at Netflix. She is a boss. She's a badass as well. She she started Strong Black Lead, as I mentioned, but she also came into a very successful brand and saw an audience that wasn't being spoken to directly and said, they need attention. And so I think that's such a testimony in, just because you've made it somewhere doesn't mean that there isn't more to go, isn't more to push. Like you should always stay hungry for, well, how did I make this better? Like I look mm-hmm. around now and I'm like, hmm, I want some more Caribbean voices in here. You know, just like you, you're always thinking of like, well, okay, so there's this, but like who, who else is out there? Who else is outside waiting to come in? She's now the global head of marketing at Clubhouse and doing her yes. thing over there. And I've also been watching her and watching how she builds her team. Like the team I work with now is the team she built. And I look at, you build a team of people that you trust and trust them to do their jobs because everybody in our team is so good at their job and they're so trustworthy. And I love that, that I'm part of a team that I can like literally close my eyes and be like, they're excellent at their job. And I know they, I know they're here because they're excellent because Maya built a team like that. So trust that and do my best work. So yeah, yeah those are a couple, I have others, but those are, those sure. are the top lines. I, I love that. And I love the way you describe each of them because it makes me feel like I can really see you as being that mentor for other people as well. Like I can see you doing similar things because you know that those are the important things that you got out of your mentors. So I, I, I have mentees. I do. I yeah, do. I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm doing great work. So I, maybe, maybe it's time for me to have a new class of mentees, but my mentees are flying. Yes. <laughs> so. Hey. This says a lot about you. I have one more question that I forgot to ask. So you gave a fantastic TEDx talk for your home country of Trinidad and Tobago about imposter syndrome entitled Why We Talk Ourselves Out of the Room. How does imposter syndrome show up in your life and what tips do you give people to combat it? It's funny because with the TED talk, I did the TED talk in September. I shot in September. It aired the end of October. And by the time it aired, I was interviewing with Netflix. And so I was getting so much feedback about like, oh my gosh, me too. I'm so glad you spoke you know, your truth. And I was having like the biggest bouts of it during the interview process because you never really, it's not something you can cure. It's not a matter of like, okay, I suddenly no longer doubt myself. I am great. It's more so a matter of how do you circumvent it? How do you see it coming? And so for me, I have my people that I go to and I, I don't vent to a lot of people. I'm, I'm very private. So like I have my tribe and I'm like, it's happening again. Oh, I feel like I don't belong. Like somebody come get me. And then, you know, they'll come and they'll be like, girl, like you got it. Like, there's no way that this, that you weren't hired by accident. They didn't, they don't look up like, oh, what are you doing here? And then I also have learned to accept compliments. That's a big part of it is I think, and I, I would say culturally for me, because, you know, from a, my TED talk spoke to the Trinidadian experience as well. Like we're very used to being very humble and, and, and humility is great, but you also can go to a fault where just take the compliment. If someone says, Oh, this was a great edit. Oh, I didn't really do anything. Oh my God. It was uh, the whole team did it. I didn't, I, I, I can't even don't look at me. <laughs> like just learn to take the compliments. Like, and as you normalize, Oh, thanks so much. I worked so hard on it. Thank you so much. And you just get used to it and it just, and just move on. And after a while, you just kind of learn that one, it's okay to, it's okay to be good. It's okay to acknowledge that you're good at something. And then two, it takes the weight out of the fear. It takes the weight because you also have 
the receipts. You have people who, you know, you have times that people say like, that was a great job. And if, if you're somebody who needs that affirmation, write it on a post-it, put it on the wall. Like that was it, you know, if you need to put it up around to you, remember that like people have said these things about you, you know, it's okay if it's in your journey, you need the affirmation because there's so much engineered to tear women, black women, creatives, people with dreams down. So like if in your personal space, you need reminders of the nice things people have said about you just to kind of jolt you out of that moment, then, then do that. But that's for me, it's just kind of, and also, you know, go for a walk. Yes. <laughs> a walk will clear all, clear okay. it all up. It really does. And I, I often have to remind myself, just go for a walk. Just get out don't, of it. Don't send that text message. Go for a walk first. Yes. No, that a hundred percent true. Don't deal with it in the moment, especially when you're all like emotional and you're feeling all the feelings, just get out of it. Just go for a walk. And also what, I, what I've been told and I've reminded this last year, most times people aren't thinking about you. The person who didn't say the nice thing that has you in your feelings or the person who like didn't patch you, like whatever has triggered your like, oh, I don't belong here. Most times they got off the call and they are just like, all right, what's for dinner? And so I think a lot of times we, because we were so isolated this past year, we're so, we're so us focused that we yeah. forget other people don't think about it. So I've had to, that also has jolted me out of it sometimes where I'm like, they probably are not even thinking about me. Let that go, girl. That happened yesterday. I spoke to someone and I, I said something that was a little on the side of critique, but in like a loving way. And then like two hours later, I'm writing her messages. Like, I'm so sorry that I probably would have said that differently. And she was like, I haven't thought about it twice since you said it. I appreciate the critique. I asked for it. It's fine. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. We're all good. I'm like, I've been thinking about this for two hours, like while doing work going, I should have handled that differently. I should have been better about it. And like, she's okay. like, I haven't thought about it twice. You're a fellow overthinker. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the meeting. I feel welcomed. I feel welcomed. It's, it's so frustrating. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This has been amazing. I'm so, so happy to learn more about you and your journey and just all the stuff you've done, all the advice you have. You're going to have more mentees just listening to this from, from just, you know, and learning <laughs> and we appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment you know would love it. Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at Mentors on the Mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at, at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast, and I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much, and I'll see you next week.